Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right, man. So glad you guys are here. Hey, if uh, just kind of a little disclaimer, if you see a guy walking around with a camera, he's supposed to be here. Okay. Uh, so you guys are kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's a good thing. But uh, his name's Jeff. So if you see him and say, hey, Jeff, don't pose. We're just trying to get some pictures for the website, that kind of stuff. But anyway, I want to let you know. So if you see him walking around, uh, you're not being sur- you know, surveilled or anything like that. So uh, don't worry about that. But we're in a series uh, called Choose Joy. And so we're, you know, kind of looking at this idea really of, of how can we, at the beginning of 2017, the beginning of this year, go ahead and determine and decide how we're going to spend and how we're going to respond to whatever comes our way over these next 12 months. That, and what we're looking at is this big idea that there's great power in joy. That joy is a powerful thing. Joy can change our perspective. It can change our perception of things. It can change our response and it can change not only our lives, but it can change the lives of other people. I came across a story as I was studying this week of just an example of the power of joy. Back in the early 1800s during the, the Napoleonic War, uh, one of Napoleon's generals, General Massena, uh, surprised an Austrian village and rolled up with like 17, 18,000 troops. And so this village was alarmed. They were startled. And so the, the elders of the town and the town leaders and council got together and they quickly had to determine what they were going to do in response. And so they made the decision to just surrender, to go ahead and give up. Don't fight back. Let Napoleon and his forces go ahead and come in and take over the town. But as they were fixing to go out and, and, and give their surrender, the, the old dean of the church, uh, the old pastor, kind of leader of the church came to him and said, listen, hold on a minute. This is Easter. Today's Easter Sunday. So let's do this. Let's celebrate Easter first. Let's go ahead and call people to celebrate the the great news and the hope in Jesus Christ. And then let's let God handle what happens with Napoleon's army. And so the story goes that all the people came to the church and they began to ring the church bell celebrating this joyous occasion of Easter. And as they were celebrating and ringing the church bells, the, uh, the general and his forces heard their celebration. He saw their joy and assumed that they were so joyful because the Austrian army was coming from the other side of the town to relieve them, that they packed up the camp and they fled. And by the time the, the village got done celebrating the truth of Jesus and the joy found in this Easter Sunday, the French troops had disappeared. And, and see, there's great power in joy. And joy is one of those things that, that if you're taking notes, split your note sheet, because this is the big idea for this whole series. Joy is not just a possibility. Joy is a promise. The joy is not just a possibility, but joy is a promise. Joy is not a, 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 a might be able to find thing. A hopefully I'll be able to experience joy. But the Bible tells us this, and Jesus himself says that joy is a promise. It's, it's something that you can depend on. It's something that you can find. Look at John 15, 11. Jesus says, I've told you these things. What things? All the, all the teachings, all his teachings about how to live, where to, how, where to go, where you should focus your life. He says, I've told you all these things. Why? So that you will be filled with my joy. Not so that you might be filled with joy. Not so that you may be filled with joy, but so that you will be filled with my joy Yes, your joy will overflow. Joy is not just a possibility. Joy is a promise. But we've got to know how do we find joy? Where do we look for joy? How do we position our lives to not only experience joy, but to make the choice to choose that joy? And that's what this series is all about because hard times are going to come. 
The psalmist says this in Psalm 35. He says, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Listen, the reality is, is that we live in a world that's full of hardship. It's full of difficulties. It's full of tragedy. It's full of weeping. It's full of mourning. But the hope that we can find in the good news of Jesus Christ is that while weeping may last for a season, joy will come in the morning. That joy is possible. That joy is there. Joy is, is available to you. It's available to me if we'll simply choose joy. And guiding our discussion, our study of this idea of joy, we're walking through the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, the New Testament leader of the church and one of the leaders of the church to Christians in a town called Philippi. Now, Paul's writing this letter about joy from prison. So we always got to remember the context of Paul himself is going through an incredibly difficult time. And he's doing that. What he's doing, though, is he's telling, listen, that joy is possible. And one of the themes of this message is, one of the themes of this, this letter is joy. How to find that joy and how to live in that joy. And so week one, we talked about that joy can be found in relationships. That joy is found in relationships. That, that Paul rejoiced in his relationship with the Philippian people. And he found great joy and comfort in that. Marcy shared a great message this last week about how joy can be found in difficulty. And Paul said, even though I'm going through a hard time and I'm experiencing great suffering and great trial, that, that joy can still be found and I'm experiencing joy. And today we want to talk about joy that's found in goodness. So look with me, Philippians chapter one, verses 27 through 30. We'll read these together, then we'll talk about it. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and I see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you're standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you're going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. He says, we're in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. So Paul begins this section of the letter with two commands, two commands he gives to the people. The first one is this, write this down. He says that you are to live as citizens of heaven. That you're to live as citizens of heaven. Now, citizenship what was a big deal in the Roman Empire. Because if you were a Roman citizen, then that afforded you certain rights, certain privileges, certain freedoms, certain responsibilities. And, and, and being a Roman citizen was something that they would uh, want to achieve because of all it blessed them with. And as a Roman citizen, there were certain ways that they were to act. There were certain things that, that they were supposed to value because that was the culture. And Paul's saying, listen, as great as it is to be a Roman citizen, your citizenship as a follower of Jesus Christ is not where you live on this earth, but your citizenship is in heaven. That you need to live as one who is a citizen of heaven. Now, I grew up in Texas, and for anybody who's, you know, knows somebody from Texas, the, the knock on us Texans is, is that we're arrogant about being from Texas. Now, my response is, is it's not arrogant if it's true. That's all I'm going to say. But 
The reality, though, is that we're proud of being from Texas. Many of you, you're proud of being from where you're from. Now, some of you, you don't want anybody to know where you're from because you're not proud, but that's a few of you, right? But for a lot of us, listen, we're, we're proud of where we're from. You know, for many of us, listen, we, we, we're, we're proud that we live in the United States. With all the junk that goes on and all the, the things happening, and we're not perfect by any means, but there's, there's a pride that comes with where you are, where you're from. You, you, you take joy in that. And as, as, a, as a person from there, right, that, that you live with, with that pride. Well, Paul says, listen, your citizenship ultimately is not where you live. It's not where you're from. Your citizenship is where you're headed. That as followers of Jesus, your citizenship is in heaven. And so because of that, he gives the second command. He says, live as citizens of heaven and conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. He says, because you're a citizen of heaven, you should live your life, conduct yourself, what you do, what you don't do, what you say, what you don't say, what you value, what you don't value. You should conduct yourself, your character, your conduct, in a manner that's worthy. That word worthy means this. It means appropriate. It means right. It means to, to, to show a, a proper respect. And he says, because you're citizens of heaven, that you should live your life in such a way where you show proper respect, proper honor, and live in a way that's worthy of all that you've been given in Jesus Christ. That you should live in a way that's worthy of all that you've been given in Jesus Christ. Now, growing up, I played basketball and we would go on road trips and tournaments and stuff like that. And I remember our coaches would always take some time before we left to remind us of a couple things. They would say, now how you behave while we're gone is not just about who you are, that you represent Irving High School, you represent your family, you represent your community. And what they were trying to get us to understand was this, is that how we handled ourselves wasn't just going to allow people or, or have people think certain ways about us, but it was going to reflect on the, the people and the places that we represent. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying that you as followers of Jesus should live your life in such a way that when people see you, it causes them to think great things about the God you serve. That when they see you and they hear what you believe and they, 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 they hear and they understand that you're a follower of Jesus, that it makes them think better about Jesus. That it attracts them more and more to Jesus. And Paul's saying that your conduct matters. Your decisions matter. That what you do is just as important, if not more important, than what you say. Because you are a citizen of heaven and everywhere you go, you represent the love and the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this have to do with joy? We said that, that Paul, one of the themes is joy. So he's talking about the relationship between our conduct, our goodness, our righteousness, and how that leads to joy, because there's a relationship. And really kind of the bottom line for today is this, write this down, that, that if we want to live a life of joy, if we want to be able to choose joy, we need to understand this, that joy grows in a good life. That joy grows in a good life. Now, I've shared this with you before. I am not a gardener. I'm, I'm not a farmer. People are like, you grew up in Texas, right? I grew up in city Texas, right? 
Fresh vegetables were the ones that other people grew and brought to the store. Like that's kind of, you know, that's not how we operate. But I do know this, that when you're trying to grow something, you're trying to cultivate something, the soil you plant it in is important. And so what Paul's saying is this kind of idea that if you want to experience joy, if you want to position your life to be able to choose joy, then your life needs to be lived in a certain way where the soil is ripe so joy can grow. And the way that joy grows in our life is when we live our lives as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. That goodness, integrity, righteousness, godliness, that that leads us and is the proper soil that will help us experience joy. Look what Proverbs ten twenty eight says about this. It says, a good person can look forward to happiness, but an evil person can expect nothing. The writer says, listen, if you want to have joy to look forward to, if you want to expect joy, to experience joy and find joy, then you need to make sure that you're a good person, that you're living according to God's ways, that your character, your integrity is worthy of the truth of God and the truth of Jesus and who you've been made to be. He says that your character matters because joy grows in goodness. Look what Galatians, in Galatians, Paul says this. He says, well, the connection is this, because how, how, how does goodness grow in our faith in God? Well, the Bible says this, and Paul says that there's a thing called the fruit of the Spirit. That if we will live our lives in God's way, God will bring forth out of our lives certain things. One of those being goodness. Look what he says. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness. So if we're living for God according to his ways through a relationship with Jesus Christ, then God wants to grow in us and will grow in us a life of goodness, a life of character, integrity, good decision-making, a life that's worthy of being a follower of Jesus. And when he does that, that grows for us joy. So how we live our lives, how we conduct ourselves, has a lot to do with how well and how much we're going to experience joy and happiness in this life that we live. So if we're wanting to choose joy, Paul says, recognize that joy grows in goodness. And so what Paul does, this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. Paul gives in this passage three characteristics of a life that's good. Three characteristics of a good life. That how do we know how we can live this life of goodness, this life of integrity, this life of character, a life where, where joy will grow in the goodness that God is producing in us. Well, there's three characteristics, so write these down. Number one is this, is that a good life is marked by consistency. A good life, a godly life, a life of integrity, a life that's worthy of the calling that we've, been, we've received in, in Jesus to be his followers is marked with consistency. Look what Paul says in verse 27. He says, then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. So Paul says, listen, whether I ever get out of prison and can come visit you in person or whether I simply just hear about you from other people, I want you to understand my desire is that I will hear that you are consistent. And he says two ideas about this. He says that you are, number one, standing for your faith. 
You're standing for your faith. The, the idea is this, that you're, you're showing persistence and perseverance. That when, you're, when, when things are coming against you and wanting you to compromise and wanting you to, to choose other ways of living, things that don't follow the God's desire for us, that you will stand firm, that you'll not be moved because of the pressure coming around you. But you see, goodness and godliness, following God is easy when life's going well and there's nothing wrong and we're not being really tempted. But goodness is difficulty, is difficult. Having good character is difficult when we're faced with temptation, right? It's like, listen, you know, it's, if, if there's no cake at the house, it's easy to not fall off the wagon and, and you lose your New Year's resolution, right? Because you're gonna have to go and find some cake to eat, right? But if there's cake at the house, how much harder is it to be good? Well, for me, it's a lot harder. I might be weak, I don't know, that's just kind of me, right? And so my wife has taught me this lesson that the way that we're gonna avoid some of the things that we shouldn't be eating is to not have them at the house in the first place. Now, I don't like that because I don't really care. Like, I need, I wanna eat some cake, I want some cake, but I shouldn't want that. Anyway, hold it for side, side note. But the idea is this, is that goodness is difficult when sin is available. That character, integrity, it, it's harder when we find ourselves being tempted. But Paul says, I want you to stand firm. He says the same thing in the book of Corinthians uh, fifteen fifty eight. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. So we need to be people who are known for our consistency in our character, our consistency in our goodness, our consistency in our righteousness, that in every area of our life, we're pursuing God. At every day of our life, we're pursuing God. That when, when temptation comes, that we're standing firm. And the other thing he says is not just standing firm, but he says fighting for our faith. See, Paul uses a lot of um, sports and athletic imagery in his letters. You know, if Paul was you know, alive today, he'd probably be talking about ESPN. He'd be talking about the playoffs and all that kind of stuff because that's how he would connect to a lot of his audience. And this word strive is this idea of a team or an athlete going toward the finish line. And so he says, listen, that, that if you're going to live a consistent life, you've got to stand firm, but you've got to recognize that it's going to take some effort. It's going to take some effort. That it's not going to be easy to live a consistent life of goodness and integrity. That you're going to have to put some work in. You're going to have to be willing to expend some effort. But Paul's goal for himself, we see in 2 Timothy was, is that, is that he would fight this good fight till the very end. Look what he says. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I remained faithful. He's coming to the, the end of his life and he's writing to a young leader and he's saying, he's saying, Timothy, strive for godliness. Strive for goodness. He says, I can look back at my life and though I'm not perfect, I can see this, that I'm fighting and I've fought a good fight. I've given everything I could to living in the way I should. Now I'm finishing the race, that I've remained faithful. I don't know about you, but as a follower of Jesus, if I want people to, to recognize something about me when my time on this earth ends is that he fought a good fight. That he finished his race well. And whether he came in first, whether he came in third, but his race, when he finished that race, he gave everything he could to live in a way that was worthy and right of what God had done in his life. There's no greater joy 
than having God be proud of you. And the Bible says that when we leave this earth and we go to heaven, that, that God's waiting for us. And if we fought that good fight, he's going to say, well done. I'm proud of you. And because we're citizens of heaven, that should be what we're going for. Not the temporary joy, the temporary satisfaction. But we're living lives of consistency. I came across a quote this, this week as I was studying in a book called Severe Mercy by a guy named Sheldon Van Uken. And it said this, because here's the thing, is that it's not just that our lives matter for us. Our lives matter for others. He says the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they're somber, they're joyless, when they're self-righteous and smug, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. And the point is this, is that when we live our lives in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, when we are fighting for and standing to be consistent in how we live this life of goodness, of righteousness, is that it not only says something about us, but it lets other people know the truth about the God that we serve. And your life and my life will either be, for the people that we know, the greatest evidence that they need to put their faith in Jesus or the greatest reason why they don't need to put their faith in Jesus. And it's all about how we live. And I heard pastors say one time, they said, you know, a, a Christian's face is the last thing to be sanctified and saved. That so many times Christians are so miserable. They're so lacking of joy. They're just nasty people. They, they're just hypocritical people. See, I want to, in my life, take away every argument to the people that I know that would want to say that being a Christian is about being a hypocrite, that being a Christian is about saying one thing and doing something else. And that's only found when we live with consistency. Second thing Paul says is this, is not only do we need to live a consistent life to have joy in goodness. We need to live a life that is marked by cooperation. That we need to live a life that's marked by cooperation. That we can't live this life alone and truly achieve the goodness and the consistency that God is calling us to. In 127 again, he says this, says, then whenever I come and see you again or only hear about you, I know that you are standing. So we talk about standing together with one spirit and one purpose fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Paul says, listen, not only do I want you to stand for your faith, not only do I want you to fight for your faith, but I want you to stand together. I want you to fight together because we need other people in our life to help us live a good life. We need other people in our lives to help us live a consistent life of goodness and integrity to help us experience joy. You know, one of the values we talk about at River Club so often is this value of community, that we're better when we're together. You know, we're, we're talking about life groups. We'll talk about life groups again in, in our kind of our next step time toward the end of the service. But the, the challenge of, listen, you need to be in a life group. You need to be in a smaller group of followers of Jesus who are there to encourage you, support you, challenge you at times, even to correct you. Because you will be stronger and better able to live a consistent life of integrity, consistent life in the way that God would want us to when you have other people around you helping you to do that. That we're better people when we're 
together. And Jesus understood this. In Mark chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, Jesus is traveling around and he begins to send out his disciples, his closest followers, to go and minister to the communities. And look how he sends them out. It says, Then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two. So he said, I want you to go out. I want you to go and, and serve. I want you to go and be the examples of, of my truth, to take my message out to the community and these people around us. But I don't want you to go alone. Why? Because there's strength in numbers. Because we need to not only stand for our faith, we need to only fight for our faith, but we need to do that together. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 12 says this, that two people are better off than one, for they can help each other to succeed. But three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. That we're stronger when we're together. We're stronger when we're connected to one another. And that's why we want to be a church that says, listen, you have a place and you belong. We want to help you find that place, that community, that group of people. Whether it's a small group or the place you serve on Sunday or during the week, we want you to get connected because you're stronger that way. And Paul says, not only if you want to live a life of goodness, do you need to be consistent, but you also, you need to be together, connected, cooperating with others. And the third thing he says is this, is that if you want to live a life of goodness that cultivates and grows joy, then you need to be a person of courage. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, don't be intimidated by any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. Listen, our courage actually speaks volumes to those who would oppress us and oppose us. That when we stand courageous in the midst of hardship or persecution or opposition, it actually doesn't just communicate strength to us. It communicates strength to those who may oppose us and want to come against us and make them realize that at the end of the day, they're going to be on the losing side of the battle. See, the Philippians were facing persecution in a lot of different ways. They were persecuted at times by the Roman government. They were persecuted and opposed at times by just the unbelieving culture around them. False teachers had come in and began to teach things contrary to what the Bible taught. And they had all these different things that were opposing them. And, and Paul himself was in prison because of his faith. He was being persecuted. Now, do you think it, just a little bit maybe that the Philippian people, when they saw Paul thrown in prison for their faith, got a little scared? Began to realize that, well, what if that happens to us? I guarantee it. But Paul said, I want you to stand strong. Don't be intimidated by those who would oppose you. But I want you to stand up, stand strong, be courageous, be together, be consistent. Now, I think it's easy sometimes for us to kind of step back and say, well, well, my opposition, my persecution doesn't compare to certain parts of the world. And that's, that, that's probably true in a lot of ways. But the reality is this, is that we all have opposition in our, to our faith. We all face times of persecution and hardship because we are striving to live for Jesus. You know, for some, it might be this, that, that your extended family don't follow Jesus. And when you go for holidays or they come in town to visit for a long weekend or whatever, is that the decisions that you're making are constantly questioned and they don't understand and they make fun of them and they say that they're not important. They, they don't understand what we're doing. And they question and they mock and you kind of feel like an outsider in your own family. That's opposition. 
For some, it's not an extended family thing. For some, it's, it's your actual family. It's your, and it's some of your biggest opposition and persecution toward your faith comes within your relationships, within your marriage. You know, there's some that, that come and they're a part of this church and, and, and I applaud this consistency and this commitment because you don't get that support from your husband or wife. And while they're okay with you going to church, you know that fine line that you have to walk sometimes of how committed can I be? How involved can I be? Where, I, where they're not gonna mind, where they're not gonna get mad and it's not gonna push them away from the church. And you walk that, that hard line and it's easy to be intimidated and scared. For some, it's, it's this, is that there's some friends that no longer really invite you to go hang out with them because they realize that you don't do the same things that they do anymore. And so now you feel isolated and kind of on the, on the fringe of this, this group that used to accept you because you're deciding to stand for your faith. For some, it might be that you're constantly surrounded with the temptation and the, the pressure to take some shortcuts around the office and around, around work that may not be illegal or necessarily wrong, but you know it's not the right way to do things. We're all going to face persecution in some form. We're all going to face opposition in some form. And if we're not careful, that will intimidate us to a point where we don't stand for Jesus. But when we give up our consistency, when we give that up, we give up our character, it lessens our joy. Psalm 56, 3 and 4 says this. The psalmist says, but when I am afraid. He didn't say if I'm ever afraid. He said, but when I am afraid, when I'm facing opposition, when I'm facing uncertainty, when I'm facing times where it'd be so easy to, to shy away and, and not take that stand I need to take, that when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. He says, I will praise God for what he has promised and I will trust in God. So then why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? He says, listen, there are times where it's hard to be courageous. But when I find myself in that place of, of, of wanting to shy away, of, of not being brave, of wanting to, to compromise character, to not pursue goodness, but it's to pursue the easy way. When I find myself doing that and I'm afraid, he says, you know what? I look to God. And when I see God, I see his promises. And I see that his promises are true. And his promises give me the strength and the courage to live a good life. See, joy grows in a good life. Joy is cultivated in a life that pursues God, that strives for God, that strives to be consistent, that is connected in community and cooperates with others, a life that, that is marked by courage. And so here's the, the question I want to just kind of want you to wrestle with today. Is my life characterized by goodness? This is the question I want you to ask. Is my life characterized by goodness? When you look at your life, do you see consistency in godliness? When you look at your life, do you see that you're connected and you're surrounded by people who are encouraging your faith and you're encouraging theirs? Do you see courage or do you see fear winning out? And then ask the question, is joy growing in me? 
Because it could be that if joy's not growing in you, the reality is, is that your life is not being characterized by goodness. It could be that sin and inconsistency has found a place in your life. It could be that being isolated and not connected to other followers of Jesus has taken its toll on you. It could be that you're struggling to be courageous. And because that goodness is lacking, so is your joy. But here's the good news today. Is that no matter where you are, God can change the situation. No matter where you are, no matter how you lack consistency, God can help you find it. That maybe you lack that cooperation with others. Guess what? God has you here at this church because this is a place he wants you to find those relationships. It could be right now that you're scared. You lack that courage. Fear is overwhelmed. God wants to give courage to your heart today. Will you stand with me as we pray? Father God, we come in this moment of response and, and God, we just, we, we recognize this, that God, where we are lacking, God, you have all that we need to overflow. And God, today, I know this, that for some in this, this room, God, that joy is, is lacking in their life. They're having a hard time, God, choosing joy in that situation. And, and it could be that, that part of that is because the soil of their life is not what it needs to be to, to, to allow joy to grow. And that there's a lack of goodness, there's a lack of integrity, a lack of godliness, a lack of righteousness in a certain part of their life. And God, today, God, my prayer is that they would turn to you, that they would seek you, that God, if they need to confess and turn away from a certain sin in their life, God, that they would do that this morning. If they need to commit to taking that next step to getting involved in community through a life group, God, that they would fill that form out right now during this next song. That they would go out in the lobby and they would say, hey, I want to get connected. Show me how I can. And God, if they're just fearful, if they feel weak, if they feel overwhelmed, that in this moment, God, your Holy Spirit would fill them in such a way, God, that they would find courage that they didn't know they had. And they would find courage, perfect courage to stand and to, to, to strive toward righteousness and goodness. And so God, we give this time to you. As we sing this song together and we remember the promises that we can turn to, how do you need to respond this morning? It could be that you need to write a prayer to God and a request that will be prayed for this week by a part of our prayer team. And if you do, these two fences on the side are a place for you to go and just write down your commitment, your confession, your need, and just put them in the, the fence and we'll grab those and pray over those this weekend. It could be today that you need to come to the front and just kneel before God and just say, God, I just need your help. I need joy. I need goodness. I need consistency, courage. I need connection in the community. It could be that you want to come and just vo vo verbalize and identify that, that God, you have a need and that God has met that need, is meeting that need and you need to light a candle. The white candles and these two tables represent that God is active in your life, that you have a need, you're seeking him to accomplish in you or maybe he's done that and you want to come and just share that as a way to, to share with the rest in this room that God is real, that God's alive or maybe it's a red candle 
Maybe this morning your commitment is for the very first time that you want to turn to God through Jesus. You want to become a follower of his. However you need to respond this morning, this next few minutes, these few minutes together, this is your time to respond. So let's see God together. Let's pursue God together as we sing.